Hello and welcome to a special 50th episode of Lowdown. By popular demand for round two is Jonathan O'Neill. Johnny, welcome back to the show. Cheers for having me back, mate. Much appreciated. Excited Johnny, for this one. Johnny, I suppose since we last spoke, you were in Canada, now you're back in Ireland. Um, <laughs> I mean, what's going on there at the moment? I just came back quickly, mate. I was in, obviously, I was in Toronto for 10 months in an incubator with a lockdown and just wanted to come home and see family and friends for Christmas. So, yeah, hopefully be back out in Canada in the next two months. And have you any good news, I suppose, on the horizon? Yes, I do. So, hopefully, have a liberty to discuss, or should I ask for it? <laughs> ask nothing else. Maybe the next podcast, mate. Um, do you know what it's like with football? Until your feet are on the ground in the new environment, you just don't know what's happening, as I have learned the past few years. So I'm going to keep that one tight to my chest for now. Um, what is good, though, is the app is about two weeks from being off a beta version for a test. So that's something I can tease you with. And I suppose, I mean, the last time we spoke, we spoke a lot about the app. We spoke a lot about emotional intelligence, but one thing which we kind of neglected, Johnny, was yourself. Obviously, your main, <laughs> you know, your main discipline being football coach. And I'm curious, you know, what does a football coach do when he's not coaching? Which was certainly the case for yourself in the past 10, 12 months. I'd imagine there was quite a, a time of incubation where you I mean, you were given freedom to learn, you were given freedom to unlearn, but I suppose for everyone listening, what did that look like for yourself? It's funny, mate, because my whole world flipped upside down maybe six months earlier than everybody else's. So I had just taken a new role in, in Canada. And for a couple of reasons, the visa, I had made a, a couple of mistakes, which I'm sure a lot of people have done if they're doing their own visa forms, which meant they had to leave the country. So I, I ended up not able to work, able to stay in the country. So had three months there where I had spare time. So I figured, what would I be doing if I was working? The only thing I didn't do in those three months that I would have been doing otherwise was run two coaching sessions per day. So I suppose six months before COVID happened, this would have been maybe July 20, 2019. I had already sunk my head into the books and I just started to try and download more information, try and become a better coach and obviously try and develop the preconditions to being able to get that ability out as well, which I think is key. So yeah, luckily I ended up getting a new gig in November and flying to China. And obviously that was November, 2019. And we can look back now, two years on, which is funny from entering China. <laughs> it's been two years. Yeah. So I suppose having a head start in everybody else, they had already started on a, a journey of personal development and incubation. And from then, it's probably just been courses, directed learning, um, keeping my fitness, maintaining mental balance and well-being, um, while still having one eye on my football career and hoping that I get to do the extra thing each day that I would love to do if I had the time and the opportunity, which was to coach. I suppose during that time off, Johnny, was it more structured or was it kind of unstructured? Were you letting the mind wander and were you trying to kind of cross-pollinate from different ideas, spend time studying different disciplines, perhaps a full-time football coach wouldn't necessarily have the time to gravitate towards? Mm -hmm. You know what? I think there's times when it's been really ordered and structured in a general direction 
and then I allow it to wander in little tributaries of that. So, for example, neuroscience has been big with me this year <clears throat> just because it was doing a Raymond Verhein course. And we started from the top and worked our way down from scanning and perception and all that kind of stuff. And I was just really intrigued in how the brain worked and how, how that actually worked. And if I'm a player, having the conscious understanding of if the ball's coming to me, what's happening. So th these kind of things are really intriguing me. So yeah, there was a, a neuroscience direction and then probably zooming more into football actions. So th there was certainly a direction to it, mate. But I think it got to the point for everybody where it was hard to keep and maintain a structure. What I was very lucky and had been doing for a couple of years before was something called bullet journaling, which is something that allowed me to have a structured, unstructured day or week or month whereby I had a certain couple of things that I wanted to track and do during the day, habits, let's say. And if I got those done, I was happy to spend the rest of my day doing whatever I would like. So I suppose I would go from having maybe structured mornings with a bit more of a loose afternoon. And I would probably have my head in the books with the coffee. Um, yeah, so it was a bit of exploratory research, but with a direction on something that's going to help me in the present and help me in the future. I always think it's good to, when you even have that unstructured time, that it's always kind of directed towards something ultimately. Um, I mean, the last time we spoke at the end of the podcast, Johnny, I mean, one of your bits of advice for those listening was, you know, always keep learning, always keep learning. But as we both know, I mean, even being present just on Twitter, the football community there at times can be quite quite toxic. And then at other times when you go looking for information, you're just drowning so, I mean, how do you go about that process as a coach, I suppose, taking one to learn and then filtering the other bits out? I think part of it's just luck, mate. Like even general life, I, I'm not a big social media person, so I don't spend, spend a lot of time on there. So I think I haven't had my lens tampered with or interfered with. <clears throat> and I know learning is non-linear, but sometimes it's good to have a structure and a hierarchy of how things are, where they are, where they sit in relation to other things. So I had two courses I was on last year. I was on one, a one-year online mentorship with Raymond Verheyen, which I would really recommend to any coach at any level. And then I was on another one with Ray Parr. Ray Parr is an Irish coach who had a structured coach education program as well. The, the best thing about them was not just the information, it was the access to these real high-quality people. And what I found the highest value of was actually meeting people like yourself, Connor, through these kind of courses or um, just through connecting without social media. So I've been very, very fortunate that I've connected with very good people over the past couple of years. And it's just led me to good information, to be honest. So it's, it's been quite organic. And I think I've been quite lucky because I do see the amount of information out there and it is very, very difficult as a coach to know what is valuable and what is not. Yeah, and it's quite interesting meeting people like yourself who, I mean, you've taken an alternative stance again, looking at emotional intelligence. There's others that come into the game from a data lens and an analyst point of view, others that are just kind of beset by the beauty of the game, Johnny. But at the end of the day, I think why you see so many different personas being attracted to the game of football. My own view is that it's an unsolvable game. There's an element of mystique and mystery behind it. And it's Peter Kravitz, he said it before, which we've discussed ourselves. You know, what did he say about football? It's like a game of chess, but you play it with dice. So it's just like, you know, how do you solve that game? How do you solve? It's like the chat. It's like a, 
chaos and control on a sliding scale, really, is it? It's like life, mate. You, you can put so much order to it and you can try and control it, but eventually it's going to throw something at that you have never dealt with before. And one way or another, you're going to have to deal with it. So yeah, it's 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 pretty much a microcosm of life. And every everybody needs something to, to give them that direction. And obviously the biggest sport in the world and the best, it's, it's a pretty easy avenue. And then if you even look at the... The amount of money that's coming into football at the minute, I think Arsene Wenger believes the projection was that the money in football is going to double over the next five, ten years. So you think about how that intersects with every other industry that can connect to sport. And what I have noticed recently is there's a lot of people who are really passionate about football who were in other industries who are now trying to make football part of their part of their day to day, which is fantastic because it is an opportunity. It is, and I think it's, as you said, it's that opportunity. Matt Slater had a great article yesterday, in fact, on The Athletic, where he said the whole championship is up for sale. All 24 clubs in the championship have a combined net debt of £1.5 billion, which is absolutely astronomical. And it's just, you see all these people that are using football clubs, whether it's for play things or a lucrative investment. It's all with that opportunity of being promoted to the Premier League, where the big bucks are. We've seen North City and we've seen their technical director who comes out and speaks so eloquently, Stuart Weber, the processes, the systems and everything they've built for the last four or five years, which has been set up to help and support Daniel Farke. And then eight, nine games into the start of the Premier League season, things aren't going their way to pull plug. You know, there's no, there's very little mercy at the top flight football these days. No, mate. <clears throat> it's like that Pink Floyd song, Mummy. I think I'll buy me a football team. So, I mean, it's been going on from, from the dawn of time. It's pretty much like the Coliseum. So there's always going to be the need for, for the people to have the games. And luckily, we get to be involved in some capacity. But I suppose, like, with what's come now in the last year, which European Super League, Florentino Perez speaking about what the younger generation of football fans wants these days, speaking about legacy fans, We've seen the big influx of investment from cryptocurrency firms into football and gambling. I mean, are we at a danger or do you think it's already happened where we've actually just prostituted the whole industry in the very top? Because, if you know, Wenger's an astute man, but he's also pragmatic. And for me, it's very dangerous when you hear the likes of him saying that in five to ten years' time, that he foresees what? There's going to be twice the investment and twice money put into football. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just the society we live in, obviously, that money money drives everything. Um, and it's like a business, and, and there's more eyes on it. So, yeah, the, the thing that I grew up and watched and was inspired by has probably changed completely. And it's the, the thing that I probably grew up seeing that I wanted to do day to day probably isn't that thing anymore, mm. you know? So, like, if I grew up watching Arsene Wenger and Arsenal, I mean, let's be real, even then, 15 years ago, Arsenal were probably a powerhouse with more money and more opportunity than the average club. And it's probably just on a off the Richter scale, exponential growth in the same pattern again. So even if you think about, was it Simon Cooper who wrote the numbers game? Was it Simon Cooper? No, it wasn't. Um, there's a different guy. Oh, what's his name? Am I going to have to Google this? Yeah. Thank you, Ray. That's really bad. Chris, Chris, Anderson. Chris Anderson, is it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. 
yeah, I mean, and he speaks about football starting off in industrial towns in England and Germany, like Munich and Manchester. And then what he goes on to say is obviously the way economies and have grew in countries and nation states have grown, that capital cities are now the main place that a football club might start up. So then they obviously have the likes of London. I think the other places he projected were places like Istanbul. So, I mean, for me, even when you see City, obviously I'm just speculating here, but when you see the likes of City having clubs, feeder clubs almost, affiliate clubs in, it, in multiple countries, you could certainly see like a World League or a Super League down the line. Don't know how that would go with our um, climate friends. Obviously, that wouldn't be too great for the the, the, the world, traveling around the world, playing football all day. But I, I really do have a feeling that it'll happen one day and I would love to see it too. Yeah. And then just even getting back to what you said earlier on about the thing that you fell in love with when you were younger isn't the same as it was nowadays, even something stupid. The Panini stickers or the Premier League albums we used to religiously fill out as kids. These days it's been replaced. It's all digital. I mean, even for kids nowadays, I still don't understand the fun in collecting these FIFA Ultimate coins. Or it just, I don't know, it just feels wrong to me. The very nature of Panini moving digitally. It's everything we everything's getting easier. You used to have to take the sticker off and then stick it on. And if you didn't get it right, you would have to pull it back off and put it back on. Yeah, they were they were good times, mate. Um, I, th I think for me, like when you say that, the thing that really intrigued me about football was just the passion from these people. Like when you go and listen to Alex Ferguson give an interview or you listen to Wenger or any of Arsene Wenger's players, every single one of those people were so passionate about what they, what they were doing. And I mean, we can talk about the beauty of ga the game for sure. Everyone there was there for the beauty of the game, but they were all ultra winners too. Yeah, but I think what's compelling about football is the very kind of diverse nature of the industry. You look at two of the most influential coaches in recent years, Sir Alex Ferguson and Marcelo Bielsa. You know, for Alex Ferguson growing up in the dockyards of Gowan in Glasgow and then Marcelo Bielsa growing up in house full of lawyers and architects, Argentine aristocracy, really. And then, you know, Tim, I merged that now with what Tim Vickery said in one of my previous shows. We spoke about Cesar Luis Minotti. And I asked him, you know, how do you describe football in one sentence? And he says, Minotti said years ago, football is simple. It's a gift from the working class to the whole world. What do you think when someone asks you what is football? It's interesting. It's interesting because for me, coaching five different teams now ranging from under sixes to under 16s, I would actually say that's a different experience. I view football in a different light there. I would describe it differently compared to, let's say, my fandom of Chelsea supporting the Irish team. I don't see them as the, I see them as two separate games, two different sports, two different industries, being completely honest. <laughs> What about you? It's just funny when you said that. What what is what is football to you? And the two words that come to my my head, and the first one probably comes because it was speaking about United and Arsenal, and the word was war. I think of war, and then the other word I think of is art. So I think there's certainly the art element to it, whereby there's something about expression and individual expression and group expression and group identity. Then there's also something about tribal battle and go on with these people against somebody else. I think these are really human things that um, 
But it's interesting, like you have two different ends of the spectrum when you speak about art and war, when you're referring to, as we all know, Wenger's Arsenal and Ferguson's United. And then, you know, in recent years, we've had one of the most beautiful football teams of all time, Pep Guardiola's Barcelona. But do you think there's a risk in this age of information that we're seeing a lot of similar styles being churned out? We don't see anybody that's completely distinctly different off the bat. I suppose one team this season that has just completely enveloped me has been Roberto De Zerbi's Shakhtar Donetsk. But to be honest, he's been doing it with, with Sassuolo for numerous years in Serie A. But bar that, I just see everything as kind of a convergence of two or three similar styles stemming from the top. There's no one that's, you know, really unique, Johnny, and that's standing out. Yeah, th- th- this is what I've been pondering as well, mate. And I know they say that they're taking Mavericks out of academies and stuff and they're killing the, the creative player, but I'm not necessarily sure that's true either. I know that Wenger, in I think it might have been his last book, he said that everybody has a game model and everybody has a philosophy, but they all play the same way. I think that was a kind of dig at the way he's seen where football has been going mm. and maybe a little, little taster for what he has store in the future. I really believe maybe it's just something to do with the risk entailing at the top level. Anytime I watch a Premier League game now, sure, there's there's differences in the teams, but most of them play the same way, the same style. It's almost like a basketball game, isn't it? Yeah. When they slowly but surely drop off and come central and compact and force teams to go around the outside, kind of the same way you would force a team to go around and hit three-pointers. Three and then if we can transition quick, we will. Um, so, yeah, I think... I think a part of it's to do with the level closing off at the top. I think there was another stage there when the level, like we thought teams were going to run away with it for a couple of years, which they did, but then other teams got more money and more investment and the top level has been the Premier Leagues again. You could say, okay, anyone can beat anybody. There was a couple of years that wasn't the case. And then when you're going to spend 30 million, 30 million on a player, you're going to hopefully be buying a player that can do things for you in a game that are going to affect the, the other teams. So, so, yeah, I think it's something to do with risk. And then it's probably down to coaches and how brave or stupid they might be in these situations. And that's why, like you said, it's good to see teams like Shakhtar, who I haven't watched, and Sassuolo, who I've watched quite frequently, develop some really cool styles of play and some good players too, like Locatelli. Well, I think what's part of the allure of getting into football in the first place, Johnny, and part of the romance is when you see, when you see a style of football that's not quite discernible off the eye, Yet there's a mystique there as to, to, as to actually how do you figure this out? I'm referring back to Antonio Conte when he came into Chelsea and did away with the back four, went to 3-4-3. Three, three. And it took a while now. It took the best part of a year for other teams to figure that out. Um, Pep Guardiola's Barcelona enjoyed unprecedented success for three to four years. Whereas now it's... I'm not saying it's a bad thing either, but with the convergence of data with the numerical quants coming into the game with all these different resources teams can't figure this out a lot quicker and for me it's making football somewhat less somewhat less unpredictable as to as opposed to the sport we both fell in love with yeah <clears throat> less less time less space more predictable because you think about it maybe 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 can't they does that for a couple of games and back then it's harder to clock them and to fix them and to solve it. Whereas now you have four or five analysts, maybe at a team with the solve by the time you get to the training ground 
on the Monday. And it's something I always play with me. What what makes the best coach? What like what makes the best coach the best team? Because everybody has all the data. Everyone knows the, how to defend centrally and compact. Everybody knows the, these things are all there. There's no hidden information really anymore. There's so many fantastic coaches out there on the floor, on the on the pitch, who can who can put their methodology in the practice or the football methodology in the practice. So it's just something that's really curious what what separates the best coaches and maybe we even look into too much as coaches maybe it is more down to the football gods after a while and we are just rolling the dice i think that's the part that people miss in life and in football as a coach and need to remember that not all of it in fact very minimal is it in your control <laughs> and um you have to enjoy it a little bit more regardless of the level i think who's best articulated this has been marcelo bielsa when he's speaking about player development in Phil Hayes' new book, um, where he spoke about the top, top players, like you can just leave them be. You just need to give them a few pointers here and there, but there's this player in the middle where he's on the verge of making it within the academy, but necessarily you don't want to, he needs a lot more technical attention from the staff and from you, but he doesn't necessarily need to be automized where you're just working off a solution space of three, four different principles. And I think what I heard during the week as well was very, very insightful and interesting. So how the top clubs are doing it. MK Dons, their technical director, Liam Sweeting, he's on the Athletic Football Podcast. And they were speaking about um, club's philosophy in terms of recruitment style of play. Last season, they had Russell Merton and they figure in the top two, three percentile in the whole of Europe for possession. But last season and this season, I think they had something like 60% behind Barcelona, Man City, and one or two other clubs. Uh, last season, they had Russell Merton. This season, they have Liam Manning. And they asked Liam Sweeting, the technical director, I mean, what's the big difference between the two? Because we don't really see much. And he says, under Russell last season, it was more kind of specific patterns of play. This season, under Liam Manning, it's what broader principles in play, but we all adhere to the same style of play, same philosophy. Isn't that really interesting? Yeah, I mean, I think it's about finding the appropriate coach for the role. I think I was reading that in Mench. <clears throat> they were saying that there's no such thing as a good coach or a bad coach. There's such a thing as an appropriate coach. And it goes back to your point about how we treat a player. For sure, there's no way that a 32-year-old... Like I, I can remember having a guy on my team. I'm not going to mention his name, but it was one league below Irish League Premier. And he had played and scored tens of, tens of goals for seasons in the in the Irish Premier League and he had dropped down a league when we were coaching the under 20s and he came into our squad for a game and we went in for a team talk and the thing that always I, I always think about is by the time we have got to the changing room by the time the game is about to go on all I can do is mess this up for these guys like all I can do is interfere because they have done their work they're ready to go out and perform while I interfere so I go in to give the team talk and he's not used to coming into my changing room and my team talk is literally okay, lads. Are you ready to go? Because I had told, like, we can become like broken records sometimes. And they say, yeah, we're ready to go. And he's shocked. He looks up and goes, I was waiting on a Jose Mourinho speech there. And I was like, I'm sorry, disappointing me. I have nothing to say at this moment in time. Yeah. So I think there, there's certainly the art, the art of coaching is about when to interfere and when to not. And I think it's most of the time about when not to. I think that's the part we miss. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a separate conversation in and of itself. 
Um, I suppose getting back to one of our initial points, I mean, obviously, you spending time out of the football in game now, Johnny's obviously giving you time to sit down and kind of reflect. And obviously, you've said you've done numerous courses, you've spoken to numerous people, such as myself in the past year. But I suppose, has there been anyone in particular or any few groups of coaches that have protect, that have particularly kind of changed the way you think or feel about any of your deeply held beliefs over the past 12 months? Hmm. I don't think I've thrown anything completely out, but I have certainly went from complete non-interference to more tactical direction. Um, and it, it was probably Yanni, Yanni Salatidis, who, who did this, because when we met, Yanni would have been running the high-performance program for the girls in a province in Canada, and I would have been in charge of the boys, although we had slightly different programs. Um, but I was all about non-interference, and he was about something different. He's very tactically brilliant. Um, and, and I hate to throw something out and say my way is the way until I have this other person's way inside out and understand it to the level that they do. And maybe I'll never understand that to the level he would because he's a special guy. But I certainly spent a deep dive into all the information that, that he would send me around tactics and individual intentions and game intentions and I think he was very lucky and, and very astute in the information that he came across um, and then very committed in the way he's dived into it. So I think I've moved away from complete non-interference. Okay, we have to... It's probably most visible in my coaching sessions. You know, we can say maybe let the game be the teacher, but that can mean many things because if you just put out two nets and let kids go and play 3v3, that may be okay at five to eight. But if you go from like, let's say 14 to 18, it's probably not going to teach those kids. It's probably okay for the 32-year-old we're talking about being appropriate. That guy needs to get fit and play the game. I need to leave him alone. But if you want to produce players and you want to make players better and improve their football ability, you're certainly going to have to be more tactical with your maybe session design and how you see the game. So that is something that I've really, really looked at and really experimented with the past year. So trying to tie non-interference in terms of how I present and how I give information and when I give it. And then trying to marry that with implicit coaching sessions. That, that's been where I've been at recently. And I think that's a, that's a system that I'm really enjoying. I think it's really evidence-based as well. If you think about the science and, and evolution and how humans developed. Yeah, so that, that's where I've been at the minute. So I certainly haven't thrown out the non-interference stuff, but I certainly came back up the, up the scale a little bit towards let's try and direct a bit more intentionally. I think that's a gateway into intuition. And for purposes of our conversation, Johnny, intuition for me means kind of your coaching style. And you hear it bright an awful lot that people, you know, they praise to death this Q&A coaching style, you know, where you're essentially facilitating a session. But I also think obviously there's time there to be a command and control coach. I don't necessarily see it as zero sum, you're either one or the other. See, football is a game with different rhythms. Obviously, if you're teaching seven or eight-year-olds how to play the third man, you don't think they're going to solve it all of themselves. The seven or eight-year-old is a creative mind. So as to how you get them to process that information, be it through divergent thinking or convergent, for me, that's really the art of coaching. Um, I'm just curious, someone like yourself who is almost, almost benign to the idea of tactical interference before, I mean, once you assimilated that, within your own coaching methodology. I mean, how did you present that to the players 
what would it look like in a typical session for you, Johnny, let's say with under 18s? So what I usually would have did before, before I would have did it, I'll tell you what I would have did before, which will make it easier. I would have started off with a positional rondo. So let's say my team, before I went to a club that, that told me how, to, how I had the coach, I would have played a 4-3-3. Why? Because I supported Arsenal, mate. And I liked the style of a 4-3-3. Teams were playing it at the time. So that, that, that was why I would have played the style. So, yeah, I mean, you have to pick something to start and then you have to go, right? Before you learn the, the whole menu, you have to you have to know one, one meal and, and one recipe. So, I mean, we would have had positional rondos. We would have broke into some kind of building out from the back game or pressing from the front game. And then we would have went into a free 11 for 11 game. That would have been the basis of one of my training sessions. Maybe add some conditioning for 12 minutes in. But having, having went to Vancouver and worked with Bart Schulfer, who's a very good Dutch, Dutch coach, who's a, who's a master of, of youth development, and he's very, very big on implicit learning, um, game-based learning. It's basically about training the unconscious action patterns of the player. So, for example, as opposed to just having a 3v3 forward, you'll have a 3v3 with a box in the middle of the pitch. And the tactical principle might be creating numerical superiority in the midfield. And it might be you have to drop into this box and receive, or you have to play one touch off this box to receive before you can score a goal. Um, so, for me, like I say, I was learning as much as the players were. But luckily, there was a coach in place before me and there was a system in place where they had been doing these activities before, which meant that they could more or less teach me how to run these activities because all I needed to do was lay out the cones and set them up and observe. So there's certainly something about, yeah, the players helping me out on that side too. But yeah, it's just been about more intentional about what I want to bring out of your player, what I want to bring out of a session. And the thing that's really intrigued me recently has been like tactical solutions and building small-sided games with with tactical problems for players. So I know I sent you a couple the past couple of months. Yeah, where I think it was yeah breaking on Brendan Rogers four two three one down, and there was certain movements that his team had. So there was a way where we could stick players within a box or within a three boxes within a certain position in relation to his setup. And then obviously I think the what was the solution that Pep had of his Grealish? Grealish in front of the back four, up on one side of the, on the left-hand side. Of the yeah, no, it was, it was Gundogan with his back turned to goal to attract the press. At the same time, the left centre-back receiving the ball was Walker, wasn't it, on the right side that was inverting? Walker was on the blind side of the full-back when the ball was going side to side, remember? Yeah. To free up. The, the free up the, the far side winger in case Grealish couldn't get on the ball and face forward and get him behind. Yeah. And the, the, the next solution was, okay, then do we set back and then switch out? And the only way he could switch out was to, I think it was to Mares or, or Jesus. Mares. The only way he could do it is if Walker cut inside. So these are just things that I've been playing with recently. And obviously you can fix players in positions and, and, and leave that as a problem within a game for players to solve. So, yeah, that's really experimental with me at the minute. Mate, haven't haven't played with it as much as I would like, but I have experimented with it, and it's something that I'll probably continue to do in the future. There's something there that rings true that the game is the ultimate teacher. I think, like, if you're a football fan, like all of us, I mean, you're just going to be welded to the TV box every week, aren't you? But it doesn't mean just because you're a coach with the white caps, or if you're a coach with with grassroots, there's something there to be taken from every game. 
because it's just that moment of inspiration that you noticed in the Leicester Man City game that you can actually implement your coaching methodology and game model. It's curious. I'm just curious about these, as Yanni refers to them, solves. That's what the game is full of. And then us as coaches, we're trying to train our perception, train our eyes. Then you're sharing that information with the players and you're trying to create independent, autonomous decision makers. But is there a limit? I mean, have you noticed it in the past, maybe from good or bad experience of overloading the kids with too much information at that age? I'll be, I'll be honest, I think the kids are like sponges. I think the kids love it. And the best teacher will, will hide the learning from them, you know, where they're just having fun and they're being engaged and they're just having an interaction with a coach and an interaction with an environment and with their friends and with themselves. Um, yeah, I, I, don't th- I really don't think it's an issue for, for, for kids these days. I know for certain generations, certain cultures, it might be an issue. But I, I, think, I think any players that I've ever worked with recently the past couple of years, have been hungry for more information and I just haven't been able to give them as much as they would need or want because it's hard to be a coach, you know, and like I say, every every player could improve, every player's positioning could be better, every player's execution and decision could be better. Um, how do we impact them all? I, I think we're never, ever going to have enough to impact them all, but is there a moment to just say, lads, leave it alone, let's play this game? Certainly, because you can look into something too much and miss the beauty of it all. I think it was... Bruce Lee, who said, it's like a finger pointing to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger or you'll miss all the heavenly glory. So we are certainly at risk of doing that, particularly people who are tactical in what would it, cerebral, maybe overly cerebral in nature or overly um, deep in thought. Maybe, maybe that's something I can be at risk of as well, which I think is even more important why we need to have things outside football. To, to level us out and remind us what life's all about and then bring that back into football. And without generalising a whole <laughs> generation, you think, obviously, today's generation, they're not as accustomed as we were sitting down watching 90-minute games of football. you see that as a negative thing? I ponder this all the time now, mate, because I would usually have sat like teams I've coached a couple of years back, we just sat and watched the full game. We just sat and watched the full game and just shoot the shoot the shit over the game and we'd record, re- rewind, let's watch that again, and we'd go through it together. Obviously, that's a much different environment if I'm coaching a, a bunch of under-15s than, than coaching a bunch of adults, right? Um, but there's really something that is valuable about being able to go to something and access 10-second clips and see. So, example, if I want to go and watch Man City's build-up, and I can watch 10 clips one after another from one game. That's a highly valuable experiment. That's highly valuable for the players to watch. It's highly valuable for us as coaches to analyze. But if we're only ever to watch cities build up one after another every 10 seconds, you're missing the essence of the game. It's not the way the game works. The game works, it's 90 minutes, and then the ball goes out, and one team has the ball, one team loses it. I think we're certainly at the risk of not balancing that out because I do see a lot of people skip now and be like, oh, just give me the clips or just give me the key points. Like sometimes you can't connect other things in the background in your brain that ideas you might be able to extrapolate and cross-pollinate if you don't go into the depths. It's like if there's a three-hour podcast, maybe you want the three key points and they'll be valuable to you, but maybe there's something said in conversation that will trigger something in your brain that will expand the completely other avenue to go down and, and be curious about. So there's something about doing deep work, but there's also something about having access to 
to, to shallow shallow information. Um, I say shallow, maybe there's a lot of value in those 10 second clips too, which I know there is. Exactly, and I think it's left side brain versus right side brain. Left side, very logical, cause and effect. Right side of the brain, divergent. With that being said, cause and effect, one of your uh, hobbies is keeping up to date with Arsenal. I mean, after losing 5-0 to Man City, that mauling at the end of August, things have changed for Mikel Arteta's men. What's going on? For me, the thing that has changed is the goalkeeper. I, I think, um, yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. Like, I'm sure there's other variables, but having, having watched Arsenal for the past 20 years, I think when, when Arteta had just came in and he had changes to make, one of, one of the best changes he made for me, I think it was forced his hand, was Martinez coming into nets. I always like Pep Guardiola's quote, the, the quicker the ball goes up, the quicker it comes back. And I always think about that when I think about the switch we made from Martinez to Leno coming back into nets. We couldn't build up under high press against Liverpool or City or Chelsea like we did in the, the beginning. Um, and then once we broke the press, we had Aubameyang in behind with all that space. And that's that's how we won the FA Cup. I think when Leno, who, who's been great in many ways, and a great shot stopper, a great goalkeeper, they could be talking about a line here and I haven't looked at the stats. I don't think he is of the level of the top, top teams who want to play I, when I say like play from the back, I just mean play football. Like teams who want their goalkeeper to be able to play the ball to their striker in between or in behind or to the fullback's chest if there's a compact central press. We weren't able to, I was watching, we were at the mercy of the football gods a lot more when Leno had to go long or from him every time. So yeah, I think when, when Ramsdale came in, a lot more stable, a lot more control of possession. Um and yeah, I think I think we're just doing now what we were doing when when Martinez came in, which was having the ability to beat the top teams. So yeah. hopefully a bit of consistency here, and we'll 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 be okay. I, I I did. I was convinced that if if he kept playing Oba on the left and he kept playing Leno in nets, he might lose his job. But luckily, Arsenal made good decisions and have continued to make good decisions around Arteta, and hopefully, um, long may it continue. And we've obviously seen an uptake in the stats in terms of some of the Arsenal's key metrics, but as you know, and as I know, I mean, noticeably when you're watching Arsenal now, there are characters in that team. You look at Ramsdale, very extrovert personality compared to the aforementioned Leno, what he's contributed to the team. Partey coming back from injury. Sambi Lakanga playing with the presence of a, of a veteran, 30-year-old midfielder. I mean, there's, Arteta has discernibly done some work in a character there at Arsenal. I mean, is that part of football often overlooked because it's not as glamorous as or as sexy as what we've become kind of accustomed to nowadays with XG and stats and the likes? A hundred percent, yep. I mean, I, I, I love the statistics. I love the information we're able to access. But then when I'm reading, I mean, I love The Athletic. It's the best place to go and get information anymore as a coach or, or as a fan. But I seen an article, I don't know who it was by, and it was like, oh, so United have signed Jaden uh, Sancho now, so that should equate to X number of points for them, and then if they sign this player, they're going to win the league, and I'm like, come, come on, mate, that's, that is not the way things work. Like, you know, like, you, you, can't, you can't quantify those kind of things. Um, yeah, and, and certainly, like I say, when I first started watching Arsenal, it was a team of characters, a team of passionate people. Um... I mean, with character, there, there, there's no perfect character, but there's certainly something cool to go and explore and enjoy. 
So yeah, he certainly brought in some good characters and I think that may be the energy that we were missing. So maybe that's something that's intangible, let's say, that, that we were missing from before. Yeah, I think he's, he's certainly bringing back the spirit of, of Wenger. That's what we were speaking about earlier on too. I mean, there's an allure there, there's a mystique about football that kind of draws you in. And for me this season, there's a cluster of teams such as your, your Arsenal, your Leeds, your Brighton's, where there's almost a naivety there. There's an unknown as to what's going to happen on a game-to-game basis. I mean, Leeds, I mean, they're only a few points above the drop zone at this stage, but they've been absolutely brilliant <laughs> and so exciting to watch all season because every game is like World Cup final. It's just hectic. That, that, there's no other way I can describe it with Arsenal too, even re-watching the Leicester-Arsenal game a few weeks ago. Arsenal got pummeled from pillar to post in the second half. But there was just something... It, Something that ignites the senses of watching a team kind of find its feet, find its character bit by bit. You look at the backbone there for Ramsdale, Kai Osaka, Emil Smith-Rowe, there's certain good times on the horizon for Arteta's men. And um, one thing you've been griping with me about over the past few weeks, too, has been Chelsea and their XG. Do you think it's going to last? <laughs> Mate, I, I, I keep tap like, realistically, they should not be where they are but at the same time if Tuchel has done the job that he may have done maybe that is their new XG and maybe it's going to take a while to have a look and maybe they're going to they're going to beat everybody else I just can't see that Chelsea team being so much better as a unit over the rest of the season than City and Liverpool now I don't maybe that's just me being stubborn because I hate the way Chelsea play I really respect it it's, a re- it's really tough to beat. But I think there's been a couple of times now where it's been solved. And now the question is, can we get a string of results against them now whereby they have to change it again? And then will their chains release the same result that this one has for them? You know, it's like the Conte when he went to the back three. I think it was Arsenal beat them 3-0. Arsenal beat them 3-0, turned them over. That wasn't an Arsenal team that beat Chelsea 3-0 ever. He goes to the back three and wins 14 on the bounce and wins the league. So you, you just don't know. These are all experiments, which is why, like we just said about Arsenal, this is a hypothesis. We do not know where this is going to end up, but judging by what we're seeing and from the character of the player, it's an interesting book to read. I'm certainly interested to read the next couple of pages and see what happens in it. I think for Chelsea this season as a fan and kind of trying to remove myself from that equation too, looking at them, what Tuchel has is obviously he's, put, he's embedded a structure Every player is kind of up to date with their roles and responsibilities. However, within that structure, you have players with different skill sets. I look at right wing back, for example, and I look at um, club captain Cesar Espliqueta. Now, he offers totally something very different in possession of the ball compared to Callum Hudson Adoy, who's, pl- who's played frequently in that position this season, and Reese James. If you look in midfield, Jorginho is often the, temp- the tempo setter, and then usually they have another dynamic player beside him in the likes of Kovacic, Kante, Loftus-Cheek mould. But that's also been fluid this season. And I think there's something to be said there about what we alluded to earlier on about the Maverick player. Who's going to be that number 10? Who's going to be that star playing your system that's going to ignite it? Yeah, no, for sure. Like, put Mount in between the centre half fullback and the two in front of him. You're going to get something different than you might get if you put in Ziyech. But I mean, like I say, another stage, another evolution. 15 years ago, you had 
Mourinho, just this wonderful Chelsea team with a slightly couple different modes they had to play in. You know, it was maybe Robin on one side, maybe you invert him. Um, yeah, Tuchel to, to, knows what he's at. And the reason I hate watching Chelsea at the minute is because I know what's going to happen, which is kind of the ultimate, which is testament to how good Tuchel is because he has control, right? There's just something about them. They're really hard to break down. It took a City team real work to beat them. I think that was one of the best performances we've seen in the season, City versus Chelsea. And even then, Chelsea were very, very good that day, defensively. Um, it took a couple of moments of brilliance. So yeah, Tuchel, back three, no transitions. Like, yeah, he's a tough cookie to break. I just hope it happens sooner rather than later because I'm hoping Arsenal start trolling their way up the league here once they beat Liverpool on Saturday. There'll be no round three on the podcast for you the way you're going. But um, <laughs> who, <laughs> who, look, who are you then enjoying watching this season? I mean, with Guardiola City, they're still figuring out some things. Jack Grealish is still settling in. Gabriel Jesus, to be honest, has been completely revitalised that right-wing role. Um, Liverpool are showing some something different, which I thought they had eradicated from their play since 17-18. And they haven't been coping with the transitions well at all with respect to what's happened this season. Um, Brighton, for me, they were very exciting this season. Some of the combinations Graham Potter has there, devising with the third man arriving, it's been absolutely terrific to watch. Yeah, no, Brighton for sure. I'll be honest with you, the way I've been living since the start of the Premier League, Arsenal has been my whole life. I keep an eye on City, I keep an eye on Liverpool, which I have done the past couple of years. Always keep an eye on Burnley. Just love love the little guy punching above his weight. So they're doing what they've always done, although they have added Max Cornet, who looks like a smasher. I would that's, honest. It. that's it, mate. It's once you have something in place, you're just adding fuel on that fire. It's providing there's always a role, I believe, for a Maverick in the team. It's what Bill Shankly said years ago. You need eight eight players to carry the piano, three to play it. And I suppose this is something we should actually um, discuss. You did a thesis paper back in 2016, 2017 on what the future player looked like. I mean, thinking back now, was there any place in that research paper for the Maverick? I didn't even mention it, mate. I didn't even mention it. I What I said was physical competency is required, not physical like mastery. So you don't need to be a Lukaku to be a pro player. It'd be very, very helpful, but you don't need it. You certainly need emotional intelligence. You need the ability long-term to regulate yourself and make sure you can actualize within your environment. Then you certainly need game intelligence. You need to be making the right decision constantly every couple of seconds. So there's no hiding around that. And then the next question, we would go from there because if we're talking about decisions, then we're talking about Maverick. What is a Maverick? What is creative? And what is the difference between that and someone who makes a good decision? So there's, there's something there, you know. I had this discussion with somebody yesterday, my friend, who says he's on a course and they're talking about developing creativity. And I said, what's creativity in football? And he just stopped and did not know what to say. And I was like, well, what are you developing? You don't know what it is. So, yeah, there's something to that. And then the question I asked him was, okay, so you have a player in front of the back back centre half. There's two of them. There's a goalkeeper. And he bends down to Taz Julius. What do you want your goalkeeper? What do you want your player to do? Do you want him to be creative, or do you want him to put the ball in the back of the net? To which he says he wants him to put the ball in the back of the net. 
So there's something there I've been playing with at the minute about what does creativity mean? I think it just means coming up with an unusual solution to a problem on the pitch. That's, that's, that's what I'm thinking. So how do we develop that without not interfering with players? The pattern recognition, though. So it's, mm-hmm. as Yanni would say, it's coming up with a new solve. How many different ways do you want to spin it? And at the end so, of so the first... You know, language is useless at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. As we've discussed countless times. Yeah, 100%. But then the, the first part of it is what's happening around me. But then that's that's the first part. The, but how do I come up with a new solution that I have never had before in a situation I have never been in before? Obviously, you'll have situations like it. So it's it's just one of those language blocks where you ask a coach something like this and they might not have a straight answer, which means we probably need to refine our language a bit more in football, right? And often with players, especially younger ones, they're doing the action before thinking. Yeah, they don't think it, they predict it because the brain, the brain doesn't have the time on the football pits to consciously think. And even if they're not 14, 15, they're not consciously thinking at all. They're they're unconscious. So whatever situation, action patterns, whatever unconscious patterns and motor behaviors they have before are probably going to be used in these situations. So which makes it even more important as a coach, like I say, to not just be completely non-interference, to maybe direct their unconscious situation action patterns in a way that's going to develop the correct football actions or the correct solutions to whatever problem they may have on a pitch. Because there are multiple ways they could... If you give Ozil the ball in between lines, he's going to do something different than De Bruyne, right? They might come up with a solution and it's their solution. Maybe it's not creative. Maybe it's just their individual solution in relation to their previous situation, action patterns and game understanding and the players around them and where they are. Cool. Looking at it from a neuroscience and an emotionally kind of intelligent point of view, Johnny, do you think there's still a lot of progress we still have to make when it comes to coaching grassroots players, underage players in this realm? I mean, that's the biggest place that has to happen. It has to happen at the grassroots. Everyone at the top has all this information and all this stuff. I've never seen anything about any of that on a course. I've never heard a coach being told they have to regulate themselves. I've never been like, go meditate in your car for five minutes after work because you're going to go out onto the pitch and the kids are going to melt your head and you're going to lose your temper. Like These are all the waste in football, the intangibles that are actually tangible that people miss out and choose not to focus on and go down the toilet. So yeah, I think when I think of potential and what potential is, where's the potential for the maximum growth? It's certainly at grassroots and it's certainly for all of this low hanging fruit, you know, the mental skills, like good habits, um, how you as a coach present yourself to your players. All these things are so much waste in, in here that, I mean, it's, it's that whole never ending debate about the professionalization of the sport and stuff and voluntary Will we ever have a solution for it? Maybe in 50 years? Who knows? But the over-pressure, the over-professionalization, Johnny, where it stems from me, is there's a lack of context because there's a lack of presence. And there's a lack of presence because there's somewhat bit of an ego there. I'm coaching grassroots, but I want to deliver this session I saw from Gerard at Aston Villa or from Guardiola at City. I'm going to dictate that upon to the players. Blah, blah, blah. And if the players don't listen to me, it means they're kids. You're supposed to act like that way. It's the, it's the, it's very interesting because I know you do an awful lot of work with your own app regarding um, emotional intelligence, not only for coaches but for players too. And 
I mean, like with this being said and all, I mean, you did the research paper, what, four or five years ago now. I mean, are you confident that any of these hypotheses have been realized or will they be realized over the coming years? I mean, I'll be honest, this is the whole app has came from that. The way the way I look at everything is is everybody has the potential to do something. They have actions that they take over the day, and that's their performance. The same way their performance on the football pitch is this is the amount of actions they do on the pitch. And cumulatively, that is their performance. They had eight shots. They scored two goals, right? So same way, if you wake up today, I woke up today, probably going to have a coffee. I should probably read a book. I should do some reflection. I should do some gratitude. I should maybe do some yoga if I'm tight from yesterday. And like that, I'm speaking as a person here, not as a coach. I think on the on the outside of the, the whole improving a player's football ability, your ultimate goal is to be improving yourself. If you're not aware and in the process of improving yourself, it's very difficult to improve somebody that is not you, unless you're a master who has been at it for years and has just stopped and has the cigar and the whiskey out now and you're doing this. You know, there's there's Jedi-level people out there who are able to do that. I'm just not one of them yet. So well, it's very difficult to realise that within a football club. When you have different people playing different games, be they short-term, be they long-term. So for me, environment is huge. No, you're right. No, you're right. And I'm finding this even when I'm when I'm speaking to people about the app, because everybody I speak to on the surface, I'm telling people, okay, there's this app that's going to help you build habits in your players and it's going to develop mental skills. And they all they all know how valuable this is when you say it. They know the value of it. They don't know the context or they don't know the how. And I just think it goes back to education because when a coach goes and takes a Stephen Gerrard session, he doesn't understand football. Anyone who goes and takes something off the internet and gives it to their players might have the best intentions. They might have the best intentions. They might get lucky and have the completely appropriate session. 99 times out of 100, this is not going to happen. So I think I think it's certainly down to education and what matters. And If you're educated at the level of the what, as Raymond would say, um, you're going to have a much better chance at, at making your how effective and appropriate. So there, there's, there's, it, it goes back to learning and education for me, mate. If, if, if you're a football coach, you have to improve a player's football ability. That's it. But off the pitch, there's life and you have to have a model there too. And I suppose, you know, as we begin to close now, Johnny, I mean, we spent a long part of this conversation discussing about the current game, where the future game is heading, but most importantly, you know, perception and decision-making. So for any coaches or anyone that's listening at all, I suppose, watching the current game and its current guys today, where should their eyes be focused at the moment? I mean, for me, I know it's going to be cliche, but you watch City and you watch Liverpool. I know we watch them all the time and see them some do some really good things. And the thing that's really helped me most, because like I say, I watch a load of games and everyone watches a load of games, but can you pick one 10-second clip, like Yanni would say, and watch it 50 times and watch every single player and what they're doing as the ball moves to every other place and where their head is and where their eyes are moving. I know that for me over the past two years, I mean, having already done a lot of that stuff and analyzed a lot of games, it was a much different level that, than I was used to. And I know that I'll be able to take this to my players at any level. I know that I'll be able to take that video and show it to my under 13s or 14s and say, look at this player and what he's doing. And they're probably going to learn more off that bit of clip than they're going to learn off me. So I would say, yeah, watch, watch, watch something often. Something short often and watch something long a, bit, a couple more times as well. That would I be think, 
I don't think there's any rules to solve in this problem, is there? <laughs> it's we'll be here all well, it's not unsolvable. There's just a million ways to solve it, which is the cool thing about it. And that's why we'll probably have another 15 of these podcasts, mate. <laughs> Hopefully, next time you jump on the pod, Johnny, for round three, you'll be in a better position to divulge what your next adventure is going to be. But um, listen, as always, mate, it's an absolute pleasure to speak. Um, second time now in the podcast, we'll have to go for the hat trick sometime soon. But um, yeah, hope you enjoyed it as much as me. Mate, I appreciated it. Thank you very much. Just a quick one, by the way, the app headcoach.app. It should be out for the public, for coaches and, and um, players in January. It's a mental well-being, emotional intelligence app, builds and tracks habits in football players and delivers emotional intelligence strategies. So any coaches out there who maybe want and know that this is valuable but don't know how to give it to their players, then just get in touch and we'll be able to get a chat about it for sure. Brilliant. I'll link that in the show notes below. Johnny, once again, thank you. Pleasure, mate. Thank you.